Hey, good morning, everybody. You can grab a seat. Um, hey, glad to see you. Good to see everyone this morning, uh, both at home and here. Thanks for being in this space and this time, uh, especially on such a beautiful day. Um, appreciate you making time to come together and to worship Jesus with us. And that's really what our we're going to do for the next hour or so is we're going to spend our time setting our minds, attentions, and hearts, affections upon Jesus. That is our desire. That's why we get together on in these times. And because I know most everybody here and everybody at home, I won't remind you, except I will remind you, um, that why we love this time, really what life looks like as a faith family is sharing life outside of this time, um, helping one another follow Jesus throughout the normal ups and downs of life, to be faithful to who God has made us to be and called us to be uh, for his glory. And so um, our prayer is that this time will center us, that it will ground us on the Jesus who is, who is dead and who is alive, who rules and reigns now, so we might follow that same Jesus into our workplaces, our homes, our neighborhoods this, in this week ahead of us. And so will you do this with me? Will you pray? with me and ask the Lord uh, to help center us in this time, to help draw us into his presence, uh, allow us to recognize his goodness um, and empower us to live a life that looks a lot more like his son's life um, this coming week than it maybe even it did the week before. We pray with me. Father, we're grateful for kindness. Uh, we're grateful for mercies. We're grateful for beautiful days, uh, Lord, to, um, Lord, to be reminded of your grandeur and your majesty. Uh, Lord, we're grateful for a family of faith um, to remind us of, Lord, your consistency in calling um, men and women to back into a relationship with you, into life with you through your son. And so I just pray over our time today as we, uh, Lord, sing songs to you, Lord, as we open scriptures and read of your son's life and his words for us, Lord, that we would... Um, we would be able to be here to hear those things. We would be um, ones who hear the word spoken and sung, who participate, uh, Father, Lord, in singing, Lord, and then are ones who keep, Lord, the word that's been given to us through Jesus. Help us today. Let us be here today. Um, let us leave here today, Father, Lord, um, empowered by your spirit, full of your spirit, that we might follow Jesus into our normal everyday roles and relationships, honoring you uh, throughout the week to come. All this we pray in your son's precious name. Amen. To uh, off our time together, um, we've asked Lexi to come up and open us up in the scriptures. God, it seems you've been our home forever. Long before the mountains were born. Long before you brought earth itself to birth. From once upon a time to kingdom come, you are God. So don't return us to mud, saying, back to where you came from. Patience, you've got all the time in the world. Whether a thousand years or a day, it's the same to you. Oh, teach us to live well. Teach us to live wisely and well. Let your servants see what you're best at, the ways you rule and bless your children. And let the loveliness of our Lord our God, rest on us, confirming the work that we do. Oh yes, affirm the work that we do.
and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You can grab a seat. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> Get it? Oh, thank you. That's perfect. No worries. <laughs> well, obviously, we're continuing our time in the letters uh, to the churches from Jesus in Revelation. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Revelation chapter 2. Um, and really, you know, it never ceases to amaze me that uh, we have here in these brief letters communications of the most intimate, specific, and pastoral type. I mean, to think that Jesus wrote letters to his children, to his people, to his followers, his disciples, with words from the word himself to those who he loved so much that he gave his life that they might live and that they might share in his. Words from the lamb who was slain, as we saw in Revelation 5, the one who possesses power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The words from that person, Jesus who walked the earth, Jesus who lives and reigns, the slain lamb uh, who's risen again, speaks to us. Speaking encouragement and admonition with surgical precision to ordinary disciples and unnamed apprentices amid the wondrous convolution of tribulation and kingdom. And the reality is we still live in that same tribulation and kingdom, right? We still live amid um, a time where we, there's suffering and pressure to live a way that's other than the way of God. And at the same time, we live in the, in the reality of Christ alive, Christ ruling and reigning, God's history moving forward for restoration and redemption. These brief letters, these seven letters that make a postal circuit around um, what is modern-day Turkey, um, they are bursting with wisdom and power and wealth of the one who speaks to them. And they're nothing less than prophetic utterances. Every time we hear the words read, as Lord just did, the words of him who, we should be transported back to the Old Testament days when the prophets would share the words of Yahweh himself, beginning each new address from God to his people with the phrase, These things says the one. These are the words of Jesus, the one who is not only king and priest and sage, but also prophet. Jesus prophesied not merely in the, the predictive formula that our modern ears are used to, but in the historical formula of God speaking directly to his people. God speaking directly to his people for the purpose so that they might live well and rightly with him and neighbor until all is made new. That's what the prophets did. They called us back into right relationship with God, out of a way that was out of step, so that we might actually live well and good for the sake of others in our lives. And it's no happenstance that this is a letter, these are letters to seven churches. There's not just one letter to the church. For if it was just one letter, we would, um, we would easily dismiss it as for somebody else, right? But seven... Within seven letters, somewhere we'll find ourselves, whether individually or collectively, we'll find ourselves in one of these letters. Words, as the scribe of, of Jesus' visceral address tells us, is blessed for those who hear it and who keep what is written. 
So blessed are we when we hear Jesus' words of Smyrna's church as the words of, to Christ City Church. So let's look more closely at the context and text of Jesus' prophetic blessed address. <clears throat> so who's, what's Smyrna? Who is Smyrna? <laughs> this is such a short letter, but it's actually such a dense letter. Um, so I'm going to try to fly through some background stuff for us to get us to, to the meat of what's going on. But it's important for us to know a little bit about this city and about the people in this city. If it was inevitable, writes commentator William Barclay, that Ephesus would come first in the list of the seven churches that we talked about last week, it was only natural that Smyrna, its great rival, should come second. Ephesus was the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. It was the entry point uh, in and out of all the goods and services that would go out. It was the economic flow of the, of the land. Um, and so it was a great and uh, mighty city. But of all the cities of Asia, Smyrna was the loveliest. It was a city reborn in splendor, a city that was dead and came alive again. In 600 BC, it was destroyed by Lydia and existed as simply a collection of villages for about 300 years until Alexander the Great commissioned its rebuilding. Through the authority and power behind this commanded rebirth, Smyrna became one of the first planned cities of the ancient world and thus architecturally exquisite and advanced. It was one of the most advanced cities in design at its time in history. As if to make clear the city's place in the beauty of the world, it actually wore a crown. Smyrna was famous for its temples to Zeus and Sybil, which topped or capped the end of a great mall, um, this collection of exquisite buildings that were all perfectly designed. And on either end of this great mall um, sat these two temples of Zeus and Sybil, and this mall itself sat upon a ridge that overlooked the city. So that it looked like the city was crowned by this great architectural design. And not only was there this crown sitting on top of the city, around the crown was this beautiful, splendid um, road that was called the Street of Gold. <laughs> that looked like a necklace that adorned the, the, the hill of the city. And so this city, just, just flowing up to the city out of the harbor, you would look at it and you would be in awe and wonder of the beauty of the city, the majesty of the city, the architecture of the city, the design of the people who lived there. But not only was the city designed beautifully, its natural features added to its reputation. Surrounding the city were groves of trees that produced an aromatic gum called myrrh. That same myrrh that the wise men from the east brought to Jesus' feet some um, uh, several uh, hundred years before, or not several hundred years before, a few years before, right? I'm getting my timelines all mixed up. Um, but a few, a few years before, that same myrrh that was brought to Jesus as a gift to Jesus, this was where it came from, from Smyrna. So if you were to drive or to float up to the city on this harbor, you would see this crowned hill. You would see it surrounded by these beautiful groves of trees, capped with, again with this, this, this beautiful ridge. And upon this kind of enclosed harbor, you would feel a cool breeze that kept the city, even in the hottest months of the year, pleasant. It, it was not Texas. It was not Dallas. It didn't suffer um, long, hot summers. Because of its enclosed harbor, protected harbor, it was a city that felt pleasant all the time. Again, add to the visual splendor of Smyrna, um, um, this claim that it was a birthplace of Homer, the great Greek prophet, um, and thus it was a center for thought and creativity, housing one of the greatest libraries in antiquity. And it's easy to imagine that the beauty of the world holding no more equal representation than in Smyrna. At least that's what the city dwellers thought right? It's, it's the best of human design. It's the best of human thought. It's the best of nature all in one place. Could there be a more beautiful and lovely spot in the world? 
It's located just 35 miles north of Ephesus. And it was, again, exquisitely crafted and naturally beautiful city. And it's nestled in this sheltered harbor in what is today the Gulf of Izmir in Turkey. It's, in fact, actually the only city of the seven named in Revelation that is still a lived-in city. You can actually go and still visit Smyrna. It's not called Smyrna. It's called Izmir. But you can go visit there. Like Ephesus, Smyrna was a free city. But it was a free city not because of its, its financial influence. It certainly was a prosperous city. But it was a free city because of its, dis- its distinction as Rome's most loyal city. So it's a beautifully crafted city, and it's also the most politically loyal city to the, to the people in charge. Even before Rome had risen to absolute power, Smyrna threw in their lot with the soon-to-be empire. Throughout its history, it maintained an excellent relationship with Rome, and it was one of four cities to host the provincial assembly. But get this, it was the first city in Asia to erect a temple to the goddess Rome, to the deity of Rome itself, to, to, uh, to what would later be um, emperor worship. It was the city chosen out of 11 other cities um, later in 26 AD um, to be the, the place uh, to have a temple to Tiberius. It beat out 10 other cities to, to have this distinction, again, as the most loyal city to the Romans. About the time of Jesus' address, it became a center of the imperial cult, the, the center of um, the deification of politics. The details of daily living, work, municipal services, and faith uh, all kind of merged together in Smyrna. Politics, religion, and economy formed a three-chord strand that was not easily broken. Smyrna was not only a great in trade, beauty, and political and religious status, it was also a city where culture flourished. Here in this marvelous metropolis, everyone wanted to exalt Smyrna and had a personal desire to climb to the top of the municipal tree. It is not without significance that in the address of the letter, the risen Christ is called the first and the last. In a city that boasted in the pursuit and achievement of everything good, true, and beautiful, a crucified peasant king was certainly an unwelcomed oddity. So, if you've got your Bibles, turn to, to Revelation 2. We're going to be in verses 8 through 11, as Laura read for us. But as we jump into it and kind of walk through this, this family of faith that existed in this city, this city that was politically, religiously, economically, like mingled together, all came together. There was um, the exquisite um, 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 example, shining star of truth, goodness, and beauty, at least in Asia, or at least in their own minds, whose desires within the city was to be good citizens and to triumph and trumpet the city's success. In this place, there's a group of people that are followers of Jesus. And if you remember, uh, we talked about last time, there's a pattern that Jesus follows in all these letters. And the pattern always begins with an acknowledgement of divine and human relationship with the, with the church. And after this, in verse 8, again, it says, to the angel of church of Smyrna. That's this divine and human relationship. The church isn't just what we see. There's more going on in the church than what is just visible by our eyes. But then after this address, Jesus does this, and he always does this. He introduces himself with a description from chapter 1's vision. But not just a description from chapter 1's vision, but a description that is most accurate or most suits the situation of that specific faith family. He doesn't just use a reference to himself from the chapter 1 where John's describing what he saw of Jesus. He describes himself in a way that's appropriate, needed, and necessary for that church. As we said at the beginning, no church represents Jesus fully, yet every church is represented by Jesus perfectly. Which is pretty incredible, right? That while we don't 
get to represent Jesus fully as our faith family, that what we have of Jesus, what, how we know Jesus, how we come to know ourselves through Jesus is exactly what we need. The Jesus that we know, the part that we get to exemplify and see and know with fullness is what we need to be faithful to Jesus, to reflect him accurately and well. The Ephesian church, for example, was a protector of Jesus, his words and his way. They were people who felt like they had to fight to uphold Jesus amongst a plethora of options. They lived in a city, again, that, it was, that had everything for sale in regards to religion. They wanted to uphold the church as a distinct way of life when it would have been just very simple to, to kind of be like the Nicolaitans and to, and to just kind of amalgamate everything, all these religious things, into a way of life. If they didn't, who would, they thought. There are people who thought their faith and faithfulness were the standard and the model for others. To that faith family at Ephesus, Jesus is the one who has them in his hands, not they having Jesus in theirs. He is the one who has authority and judgment over all the churches, in which they are simply one of the churches. Standing firm without growing weary was certainly a good thing, but if it is love in which we, they stand, unless it's love in which they stand, it's not a good thing. Jesus does not need your protection. He desires your steadfastness because you are loved by him. And he, he loves even his enemies. So to protect without love is to lose the very thing God who so loved the world sent the son to die so that it might be restored. That's how Jesus is described. He's the one that's protecting. He's the one that's holding. He's the one that's standing and giving life. And yes, there's value in standing firm for faith, but only if that firmness comes out of standing in God's love. The faith family of Smyrna was different. They were in a completely different spot than the church of Ephesus. They were not fighting for faith, but surviving faith. They were not fighting faith, but surviving it. They were fighting to live because they actually had faith. They were a people confined because of their expressed faith, barred from the basics of daily living, running into afflictions at every turn of life. To this faith family who we know little about, either in origin or influence, Again, a nameless, faceless people, but ones that Jesus loved and spoke to. Jesus is depicted as the utter sovereign over all of life and even death. He is the first and the last who, di who died and came to life again, verse 8. Jesus is life itself, the one who gives life and frees from the fears of death, daily and forever. We're removed from the fears of death. Why? Because he's defeated it. He's dead and he's alive again. If Ephesus, if the Ephesians were most in need of love, Smyrna's faith family were most in need of hope. While their faithfulness was no less than the Ephesians, it was pressed differently. The Ephesians held fast to Jesus in a world full of options for something other, something twisted, some sort of compromise. The Smyrnans were holding fast in a world closed off to them because of their relationship to Jesus. We know this as we keep going in verse 9. In this address alone, Jesus modifies his usual encouragement, which will be true of the other six churches, of I know your works, to say this. I know your tribulation. And tribulation, um, despite what we may have in our own minds of what that might mean or what, to what sort of images that, that brings up, the word itself means compression, restriction, being squeezed and and to where you can't live, to where you can't move, to where you have no freedom. Like, that's the idea, that you're being squeezed and pressed. So he knows that they're being squeezed and pressed. He knows what it's like to feel the pressure of living in life. 
He also knows their poverty. He says, though you're rich in it, and we'll come back to that in a minute. And he knows the slander or blasphemy that they face. The works that the, the, the church of Smyrna did were not works like the, the works of Ephesus where um, uh, they were standing fast and standing firm. They were fighting a particular group or a particular idea or a theology. Their works was simply sticking with Jesus and one another when it would be easier not to do so. That was their works. Their works was sticking with Jesus and one another when it would be easier not to do so. They were sharing in the suffering of Jesus and, uh, and others whose lives and words called people to right relationship with God. Revelation 2.9 is Matthew 5.11 and 12 in real life. Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount, which read this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil, slander, blasphemy against you falsely on my account. That's what Jesus said the church in Smyrna is suffering. Blessed. Already happy. For you are not poor, but you're rich. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why are the church in Smyrna feeling the pressure? Because they're outwardly living a life, proclaiming a life of Jesus. It's not hidden. It's known that they're Jesus followers, that they're trying to follow the way of Jesus. They're calling each other and their world into a right relationship with Jesus. And because of this, they're feeling squeezed. And because of this, the things of life are hard for them. The faith family of Smyrna found themselves on the outside of everything that made Smyrna Smyrna. The entanglement of politics, religion, and economics had created exclusive civility, requiring allegiance to Rome and her leaders to participate in even the most basic trades within the city. If you did not participate in emperor worship, if you did not have some sort of past to not participate in emperor worship, as we'll talk about in a second, you were not allowed in the trade guilds. You could not buy and sell. You could, you could not craft and study. You could not lead. You could not make a living unless there was, you had loyalty to the city's politics, which were religion, right? Which was faith. We, we differentiate some in our day, even though it's, it's in this season it's been the most mingled that it's probably been in our lifetimes. But, it, but it, in, especially in their world, there was no way to separate. If you did not worship the emperor, if you did not participate in the political, economic, um, religious commingling of life in the city, you were an outsider. You were confined to eke out an existence off the ladder, unable to achieve what the culture said was the greatest good, which was to be a prominent citizen, to be an insider, an influencer, a person who could get things done and enjoy the goodness and beauty of Smyrna. All that was gone for you. If you did not participate in this commingling of politics, economics, and religion. But here's the real kicker. While we might expect this pressure, this squeezing of tribulation to come from those pagan Roman trade guilds and temples, right? We kind of expect that. This is not, they weren't a Christian culture. Like it, it would make sense that we get, they would have some sort of pressure on that. The sad truth, as we see in this letter, is what the, the pressure came not from there, but from the what Jesus calls the synagogue of Satan in verse 9. From those in this city that shared a root of faith with Jesus, the Jesus followers in Smyrna. It was from within their own community that the pressure was being put upon them. Jewish faith had a pass of sorts in, when it came to emperor worship. Um, 
the, that loyalty uh, that allowed them to participate in economics and politics of the city life um, was, um, was kind of given a little aside for the Jewish community. Um, they didn't have to worship the emperor as deity as long as they had some sort of fidelity to the, um, to the aspirations and leadership of the Romans. They could, they, as long as there was loyalty to what the Romans wanted, they, they would find themselves able as a community to worship freely. They were Jews in all the historical sense, and ethnic sense, but there was an accommodation that allowed them to participate in the city um, very much like everybody else in the city. In some ways, they were very much like the Jews in Jerusalem at Jesus' trial and execution, that thing that's going to take up the bulk of our week this week as we go into thinking about Jesus' death and resurrection next Sunday, right? Like, as if you're reading any sort of reading plan, I'm sure you're going to be reading about the trials of Jesus and the interaction he had with the Jewish leadership in Jesus in, in his time. And it's going to be a lot like this, that it's people playing both sides of the game. And, and after all, aren't there ways to get ahead for God when you leverage the powers of the world? At least that's what the Jews in Jesus' day thought. That's what the Jews in Smyrna believed. For a while, Christians experienced a similar past because they were considered a sect of the Jewish faith. But in Smyrna, as would happen elsewhere, there were Jews who wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Not all the Jews, but a lot of Jews. Some rejected the Jesus followers out of spite for the Christians' popularity among the God-fearers, those Gentiles who were attracted to this monotheistic and moral faith, whom Jesus was especially attractive there was a large group of God-fears, ones who, who were attracted to the Jewish faith who were coming to the Christian faith. But really what most rejected Jesus out of a conviction that they didn't need to be freed from sin and death by a suffering Messiah. Jesus was offensive. And he offended them. The Samaritan Jews were much like some Jews in Jesus' time who were initially intrigued by Jesus' wisdom and power. Still, they were just as quickly offended by his claim that through him came freedom from sin and death. Which, listen, that doesn't sound too bad to us, but what does that imply? Well, it implies that you are dead in sin. That you're ostracized from God and you need to be reunited with God. That something has to happen outside of you in order for you to be one, the thing that you think you are, the thing that you want to be. And that's offensive to some of us. While these Jews, as as recounted in John 8, saw themselves as children of Abraham, Jesus said their father was the devil. He says in John 8, 44, um, and your will is to do your father's desire. Rather than receive God's rescue, they would rebel against God's rule, just as the enemy of God himself had done. The Jews in John 8 would quickly demonstrate the accuracy of Jesus' prophecy, his assessment, by seeking to kill him. By the end of the chapter, they're trying to stone him. This tactic was similar to the one the Jews in Smyrna were employing and willing to employ. Certain Smyrna Jews made it a point not merely to remove the Jesus followers from their place of worship, but also to make sure the governing officials knew they were an illegal, contentious, and dangerous rabble. Their means of affliction was slander, blasphemy, lies against God's children, going as far as making up dramatic lies about the Jesus followers. Here's a few of them. Um, They said that they were cannibals, Because when they received communion, they would say, as Jesus did, this is my body and this is my blood. They would say they were hedonists, since um, when the Christians came together for their community meals, they often called these things agape, or love feasts. They were against the family. 
Unlike our common thought where we think uh, historically like pagan people are like some sort of anti-family, anti uh, um, kind of um, um, core things to life, like they were actually super family oriented. But the reality is when Jesus came into families, oftentimes families did split. Because they were split over who Jesus was and what life looked like after him. And so the Christians were, were considered ones who were breaking up the most central thing to community, to society, the family. But most of all, they were accused of being disloyal to the city. They, didn't want anything, they, weren't, they were not about the good of the city. They, would not, they didn't want to seek the blessing of the city. Why? Because they would not say Caesar is Lord. And this proved to be the most effective lie of them all. This group of Jews, Jesus calls the synagogue or assembly of Satan. Satan is the accuser, the blasphemer, the slanderer, the one who in our scriptural stories tells us is the one who's actually out to destroy what God's good is, right? They weren't just accidentally in the, in, they weren't just uh, ignorantly going about doing things wrong and against God. They were in league with the one whom they, who was actually physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually against everything that God was good. They were in a synagogue in collusion with Rome who denounced Christians to authorities and showing that they were filled rather with hatred and slander, which is, again, nothing like the God who reveals himself both in Scripture and the one who Jesus speaks of, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, would be about. Their actions demonstrated who they were loyal to. But it's important to notice this. If we keep reading in verse, verse 9, it says that the, um, the Jews are not, but they are the synagogue of Satan. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. It, it's important to know, again, Jesus calls these Jews the synagogue of Satan, um, a slanderer, a blasphemer. And then he refers to the devil, the, the, the great adversary of God, as the one who afflicts the upcoming squeezing, the upcoming tribulation. And listen, in the Revelation especially, the devil is the, the principal enemy of God and his people. And so while our tendency is to focus on the people, and Jesus is kind of letting us in, like, hey, there's something going on behind the people. The real enemy is not culture or cults or particular people, though they often work in union knowingly or not, with spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, cosmic powers of over the present darkness, rulers and authorities in influencing people in all kinds of places, right? That's what Paul says in Ephesians 6. Like, so, so it's important for us, even as we get into these, even as we read these letters, to recognize, just as the church has a spiritual reality, the forces that are against the church have a spiritual reality too. And that Jesus won't let us become like the ones who, who he says that are against him by inflicting harm on the people. <laughs> right? He won't let the Ephesians do it. And he's trying to keep the Smyrnans from their natural tendency to want to fight people, want to combat. But against such adversity, the faith family of Smyrna suffered well. That's what Jesus' encouragement is. Sharing in the fellowship of Jesus' suffering, as Paul would say in Philippians 3. They took up their cross daily as ones not greater than their master, but to whom they are apprenticed. In John 15, this is what Jesus says, and what is coming true in Smyrna. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they also will also persecute you. On account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And who are the ones who persecuted Jesus? Jews. The synagogue of Satan, the ones who were insiders, not outsiders in the faith. 
right? That's where it came from. Jesus said this was the reality that they would have to experience. Samaria's faith family shared both in Jesus' experience of life and therefore, too, in his experience of life forever. On the other side of suffering, they are faithful unto death, he says, and I will give you the crown of life. So we have this um, acknowledgement. We have um, in verse... Chapter 2, verse 8, we have an acknowledgement and an identification of who Jesus is. In chapter, in verse 9, a, um, an encouragement. Um, but if you notice in the pattern, there's always an admonition. Now, it's, most people, or a lot of people, I think, kind of miss the admonition um, in to Smyrna. Some people say that there isn't an admonition, a, a warning, a, a rebuke to the church of Smyrna. Um, but I think, I think it's because we tend to think of admonition as this kind of harsh thing. This, like, strong discipline. I mean, we read it in Ephesus, right? Like, this thing I have against you, that's a pretty strong words to hear Jesus say, this thing I have against you. But for any of those who, who are parents and those who are even aren't, maybe who have been parented well or have, done, or have taken care of kids, you know you don't correct your children the same way in every situation, right? You know you don't admonish them the same way in every situation. In the context of Ephesus, they're losing their love would be to lose the very thing that God had died for, Right? It was because God loved the world, loved the enemies, that he came and gave his only son so that they might, be, might know who the Father is. They're about to lose that. And so he comes strongly. This thing I have against you. In Smyrna, they're about to lose the blessedness of suffering. And so his admonition is a gentle admonition. Do not fear. It's an admonition. It's a warning. Hey, fear is going gonna, is gonna to make you lose out on what you have. Fear is going to keep you from experiencing the fullness of what you're holding on to. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are you when already happy, full is your life when you're in amidst suffering, when you're persecuted and you're in your tribulation. Rejoice and be glad because of that. Because already full is your life. Already strong is your faith. Already you have what it is that God promises you. Again, it sounds a lot like Jesus' words to the church of Smyrna. But notice that while Jesus can completely identify with the anguish and difficulty of such revival and suffering, he never says, that, take, he never says enjoy the suffering like for suffering's sake, but he says rejoice and be glad for what it means, what it's a part of. He says, already happier are you when you rejoice and be glad. Fear, while natural, keeps us from experiencing the fullness of what we are sharing in when we suffer because we are relating rightly to God and others. When we fear, we're subjecting ourselves to the very thing that Christ has set us free. Jesus would say this way in Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Or as Jesus said in Chapter 1, verse 18. Fear the one who has the keys of death in Hades. Don't fear the one that doesn't have control of death and life. Fear was keeping the Smyrnans from the joy of suffering. What Paul would explain comes from suffering. And because that's hard for us, especially as Americans to hear, because we think suffering is the, the worst thing that you can have. And our, our tendency is to avoid all suffering. Listen, Tribulation is going to be normal. Like, that's a part of life, right? We've t- we talk about that all the time. 
And so if we're going to get through tribulation and as members of the kingdom, not just someday, but in the midst of it, then we have to understand what suffering, especially suffering for the sake of Jesus, actually is and what it achieves. Paul says it this way. He says, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character, that life that naturally lives like Jesus Right? That's what character is. The character of Christ. The character to be able to naturally respond, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to bear the fruit of the Spirit in every aspect of our life, produces character. And that character produces hope. There's that word again. The thing that the, the Samaritans needed. And hope that does not put us to shame. The hope that isn't the end bottom of the ladder, the lowest place, the poverty, but is rich. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Why should they not fear? Because they know what comes on the other side of testing. Now here's the thing. Go back to, to, to verse 10. Because here's where we all get confused, right? Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And then for 10 days you will have tribulation. So the reference to 10 days of tribulation, um, to this suppression or lack, is not only a reference to some specific hardship to come, which like we can look in history and see that there was, at a time much later than when this letter was written, when there was physical imprisonment and execution of Christians, especially Polycarp, in Smyrna. But the idea of 10 days here is going to bring us back. It's not just a reference to a specific event that may come in the future, that will come in the future, but a reference back to a similar hardship of Daniel in Daniel chapter 1. If you remember the story of Daniel, Daniel and his followers, um, uh, or his fellow God-fearers, they're, they're the, the best of Israel. They're taken from Jerusalem, and they're taken to Babylon. And in Babylon, because they were the best of the best, they were pressured to accommodate to the culture's collusion, to the politics and religion in order to live. They were, they were meant to be grafted into Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel, because he has faith in God, because he desires that faith to be distinct faith, to be a faith that, that doesn't remove him from his situation, but it lets him be faithful within that situation, he chooses to be tested for 10 days. If you go back to Daniel chapter 1, Daniel is the one who asked to be tested to, to not eat of the food and of the drink of the Babylonian courts for 10 days, he and his friends. He chooses to be tested. Why does he choose to be tested? Because he knows who God is, what God will do for him. He knows the faith that he has is sure because of the God whom he has faith in. Daniel and his companions were tested like the Smyrnans because they chose not to defile themselves with the entanglement of the way of the city. Tribulation, again, isn't chosen. It's inevitable. Daniel was in tribulation, removed from his home, taken 400 miles into a place where he did not want to be. But in that, he was tested because of faith. Out of faith already present. Daniel doesn't ask to be tested if he doesn't have the faith to persevere. Daniel doesn't ask to be tested if he doesn't know that God will persevere him through what he asked him to persevere him through. If you think about that. I mean, that's a pretty incredible reality. Daniel is so sure that he can let his faith be tested. He's so sure that the proof will be in what comes next. A crown of life. 
In Daniel's case, he and his friends are pulled up to be ones who lead the city. To be demonstrated in their distinction. That they are, not, they are not just people of high character, but are actually for the good of the pagan place in which they dwell. Because they refuse to accommodate. Because they refuse to participate. Because they believed in God, that would, God would raise them up into something, and do something different through them. I don't know that Daniel had in his mind that God would pull him to a place of high power after it. But he knew, he knew that God would pull him through and the distinction of his faith would be something that would be a blessing no matter what to his people, to himself, and to the God whom he is serving. Like Daniel, the Smyrnans were being persecuted to fit in, to join in, add a little, take a bite of the life of the city, to accommodate Jesus' way into the way of politics, religion, and economics. Fear would keep them from acting as Daniel and his friends did. If Daniel was afraid, he would not have asked to be tested. Right? I'm sure he was nervous. Don't get me wrong. But if he was acting out of fear, if he was letting fear be the thing rather than faith be the thing that that drove him, that shaped him, that determined his decisions, he wouldn't have done what he did. And in doing so, he wouldn't have received the abundance of a place within the community in which was actually persecuting him. That's the same promise that Jesus gives the Smyrna church. Persevere, and I'll give you the crown of life. What did the, what did the Smyrnans want? They wanted a crown of life. Their city was crowned. They wanted the same crown. The crown that their city wore of God and politics and economics, like that whole thing that the mall represented, this crown of Smyrna represented. Everything that they wanted, everything that the Jews who accommodated wanted, the synagogue of Satan wanted, Jesus says is theirs. The crown of life. The church gets what the city and the synagogue of Satan wants, a crown, honor, but through patient endurance and not compromise or competition or combat. It's pretty incredible. But not only do they get that, there's one more promise in verse 11. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus' promise in verse 11 is a promise that he holds sway over what comes after this life as well as what happens in the midst of it. And those who hold fast to him need not fear what is to come. The second death would be developed later in in rabbinic tradition um, after the Old Testament to be this idea of of judgment. When God returns to to judge, um, that there there will be a time in which there's a separation of the sheep and the goats, if you know Matthew, right? And that those who conquer, those who hold fast to Jesus need, need not fear that thing which is to come. Why? Again, going back to, verse, to chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus says, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. I am sovereign over life and death, the beginning and the end, everything that you experience. And I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Christ's resurrection gave him power over the entire sphere of death, which enabled him both to bind Satan and the devil, the very enemies in which um, he was persecuting, they were persecuting the church. He can bind them to that realm and to protect his own people from its ultimate harmful effects. Because that that is who Jesus is. That's what Jesus does. He's a good shepherd who protects his own from wolves within, strangers from without. Because that is who Jesus is, our faith, which is in him, 
Remember, we talk about faith all the time, and we're a faith family. But what, who do we have faith in? This Jesus. Our, our faith isn't just faith, just like we believe something. Our faith is that we believe Jesus was alive, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again. That he was the first and the last. The one living again, who rules and reigns, and puts everything under his feet. Because of that, whatever test we may walk in, our faith will be proven true. Because our faith isn't in my strength and perseverance. The faith is in who God is and what God does. Every test will be proven true of our faith, who we have faith in and what he does. And therefore, every tribulation can be rejoiced in. Let's pray. Father, we confess that um, suffering and um, difficulties um, are not things we long for, things we want, but they are a reality of life. Life in between the promises of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the fulfillment of his rule and reign forever. In a world which invites us, Father Lord, to accommodate Lord, and accommodate it in a way that compromises the faith that we have, a way of life that we've been given. Help us to hold fast, to not fear. For those of us in this room, in our homes this morning, who fear testing, who fear tribulation, may we hear the words of the first and the last, the one who died and the one who lives. May we hear him speak to us. May we respond with rejoicing. In his name we pray. Amen.
can uh, grab a seat. Um, as you know, in this series, we, uh, we want to hear what Jesus says to the church. And, um, and part of the way we hear that is we listen to the church um, speak to us. And so I've asked uh, Allie um, to come and to share a word as she's meditated and asked the Lord um, to, uh, to encourage our faith family. So. everyone today. For those that don't know me, I'm Allie. Um, and as Jeremy asked me, yeah, to think on and meditate on these chapters and to think on um, what has been an encouragement to me, a couple of things came to mind. I think um, through the past year, we've gone through a lot together, um, not just with COVID, but um, death and sickness in other ways, and um, we've talked about hard things that are out of my comfort zone, specifically the practices of lament and fasting, and as we've gone through those together as a faith family, many of you have shared about your experiences with those things, um, and I've just really seen a humility with that, um, and so I am encouraged by your humility. I also think that this has led to the, a depth in our body as I've heard what you all 
have lamented over. And sometimes it's things that maybe I don't think about or I don't lament over. And so that's stretched me in my faith. Uh, you've also shared about things you've lamented um, that aren't yours to lament, but are other um, members of our bodies and my um, things to lament. And so knowing that you're in that with me has been such an encouragement. Um, I think through fasting too, we've talked about fasting those grievous sacred moments. And so hearing from you all the things that you've grieved um, and just the vulnerability that's come with that um, has just really humbled me. And like I said, I think led to a depth in our body. And I think also really led to unity among us as we have stepped out in faith um, and started to do those practices and share about those things. Um, and so thank you. Thank you for walking about out um, humility. Thank you for being deep. Thank you for um, unifying us in all of those things. It's something that has really um, strengthened my faith. And that leads to my exhortation. Um, I think that the Lord is really, for me, pressing upon me to lean into this. I'm not someone who, um, it's hard for me to be vulnerable, and it's hard, um, I think, for me to lean into that. Um, it's not of my nature, and it's not the way that I grow up. And so I think for me, the Lord is showing me that uh, this is your time to lean into those things. As I've read these chapters and as Jeremy talked about, if you haven't read them out loud, um, I highly recommend it. I think as I was reading it out loud, you just really, for me, feel Jesus' love for us, that he knows us, he knows what we're going through, and out of his care for us, he wants us to live um, a full life with him. And in every passage over and over again, he talks about repenting, um, and that for me is confessing of sin and turning from that. Um, and so my exhortation is for Satan to not stop us in that. I think we've started that, and it's been something um, that y'all have helped me with. And so I just exhort us to lean into that, that there is opportunity to continue to do that, um, to lean in, to confess sin. And our DNA or our, our small group, something that we've been talking about and have come back to talking about is being fully known by our community. And so um, that requires being 100% in and sharing 100%, um, not just 99% and leaving, holding back that 1% that you don't want to share um, or you don't want to bring to light. And so um, we're constantly thinking, you know, am I sharing that 1%? And so um, I just exhort us as a faith family and in our smaller groups, I don't know, all of y'all on a deep heart level, um, but to share that 1% and continue with that vulnerability and humility because that is what binds us together, and that's how we grow. Um, so yeah, if you are at home, if you'll grab your communion elements, and then if you are here, they're actually going to be in the little pocket in the seat in front of you. And I think I'm going to get the words on the screen. So I'm going to read it out loud. And then in the bolded portions, if you all will join me. 
Father God, we stand before you in humble adoration as we set our face to the task and interests of another week and season as Jesus' church. Thank you for the blessed assurance that we shall not be called upon to face them alone or in our strength alone, but that at all times we will be accompanied by your presence, strengthened by your grace, and encouraged by your family. Thank you that throughout human life run the footprints of our Lord and Savior, King and Sage, Priest and Friend, Jesus Christ who for our sake became flesh and tasted all the different challenges of daily living as well as the end we need no longer fear. Thank you that as we go about our work and play in pursuit of relationships and aspirations, we can be conscious of the spiritual presence of the heavenly host. Thank you for the saints who rest from their labors, the patriarchs and matriarchs, prophets and prophetesses, apostles, noble martyrs, for all the holy and humble, for our dear departed friends and family who have shown us your way. As we remember them, we bless and adore your great name. We rejoice, O oh Father, that you have called us to be members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Let the awareness of this holy fellowship follow us wherever we go, cheering us in our loneliness, protecting us in company, strengthening us against temptation and encouraging us to act in love and justice. O oh Lord Jesus Christ, you called the disciples to shine as lights in a dark world. In remembrance and repentance, we acknowledge before you the many faults and weakness of, of which we are guilty. We who in this generation represent your church to the world, we as Christ City Church especially acknowledge our part in this brokenness. Forgive us, we pray. The feebleness of our witness, the meagerness of our giving and loving, and the mediocrity of our zeal. Help us live equal and measure to love received, following the one who cared for the poor and the oppressed such as we. Let the strength of our spirit, O oh Jesus, be in us all to share the world's suffering and redress its wrongs in the fullness of your joy. Through Jesus' life given, we live. Amen. Your bread.
before we close in prayer and with our final word um, from Jude, I just wanted to say briefly, um, I'm sure you've noticed, I noticed, that this is probably the most of us that have been in this space uh, in over a year now. Um, and I just wanted to say that it's good to see so many of you. I know um, I'm not trying to be political or anything, um, but it was just it's just good to be in a room with all of you. It encourages my heart and my soul, and it, it's good to hear you sing. It's good to see your smiling faces. I'm imagining them underneath the masks. And um, anyways, if you felt it, you're not uh, crazy. It does feel good to be together and to worship together. I mean, we don't we don't usually talk about numbers at Christ City. That's not really what's important. But um, worship and uh, togetherness and community for us is. And so it's just good to see you all. I just wanted to kind of call call it what it is. It's good to have you here and to be together. Um, let's pray. Father, we love you. We do thank you um, for your um, togetherness with us. That you, for your presence here with us uh, on these Sunday mornings, Lord. Be with your church this week as she goes into um, the coming week with whatever's on our plate, whatever um, we're, we're facing this week. Lord, be with us, and uh, I guess maybe even more than that, help us uh, sense your nearness to us. You've promised to be with us, and so, Lord, we just pray that our ears and our eyes and our hearts and our minds would be open to your nearness and your presence. Lord, we thank you for the shuffling feet of our little ones. We thank you for... Um, the, the energy that they bring to us with their cries and their um, not caring to be quiet. And we just love them and we thank you for them. And we, we pray for more of you in our youth and in our, in our gatherings in the coming weeks as we walk into whatever is next for Christ City Church. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll give... Uh, our scriptures, the final word. This comes from Jude. We've been reading it to close our gatherings during this time. He writes, Now to him, it's Jesus, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Be blessed. See ya.